From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. It is finally here, Michael Wolff's much-anticipated new book, Fire and Fury. The anticipation for Michael Wolff's White House tell-all was validated by the juiciest, scariest, viciousest behind-the-scenes tidbits ever. The author of that book says that people all around Trump think that he is unfit and acts like a child. According to Michael Wolff's reporting, the president of the United States takes his cheeseburgers to bed with him. The book also suggests the president was so paranoid he might be poisoned, he wouldn't let White House housekeepers touch his toothbrush. The depictions of chaos, instability, and even criminality were so vivid, the White House attempted to suppress publication which, of course, just generated still more attention for the book, which is on back order while the publisher prints a million more copies. Fire and Fury has raised many issues about the competence and stability of the president and his administration, putting Donald Trump's mental state under heightened scrutiny. But it has also raised questions about journalistic access and methods and put the author under some scrutiny as well. Michael Wolf joins me now. Michael, welcome to OTM. Thanks for having me. In the introduction... You write that shortly after the inauguration, quote, I took up something like a semi-permanent seat on a couch in the West Wing. How in the world did you get on that couch? The West Wing is very small, and the front room in the West Wing, which is the reception area, is also one of the main conduits. Anybody and everybody passes this couch. There are actually two couches in this area, sometimes I would think, oh, I'm going to try that couch. Did you have an actual day pass? I mean, how did you get through the gate? No, no, you got through because you made appointments. And then whoever your first appointment was, you know, they would put you in the system. You would get to the front gate of the White House, and they would look you up on a list, and then they would pass you through. And then literally from the gates of the White House on Pennsylvania Avenue, (laughs) you're free. You can go almost anywhere. So say it was a 10 o'clock appointment, and they were never on time. So you would sit on the couch, and the hours would pass. And then they would see you on the couch, and they would say, who are you waiting for? And, I mean, often it was Bannon, and I would say Bannon, they would go, oh, God, because he never kept his appointments. So then they would say, well, why don't you come back? And like in any office, you know, they clear off the papers off the seat beside their desk, and... And you sit down and you chat. So for months, you are a ficus in a dark suit till people get used to just seeing you there and simply assume that you are okay to talk to? Exactly. Hey. They would say, hey, hey. (laughs) That was it. Now, what about Bannon? I mean, how instrumental was he? Did, Did you have some sort of letters of transit from him or from the president himself that signaled to the rest of the White House staff that you were, you know, okay to engage with? Yes. I mean, the president was a supporter in his way. Bannon was a supporter. Kellyanne Conway was a supporter. I I went into this certainly with with an amount of goodwill among key people. I mean, it wasn't wasn't on the top of mind. I mean, actually, that was sort of, I would say, probably important. I was never on anyone's top of mind. I, I was just a, a sort of a, an afterthought. And the very fact that Steve Bannon was talking to you, offering his point of view, uh, encouraged other factions of the White House to whisper in your ear to get their 
narrative in. And in the end, you had all three factions competing for your attention. Yeah, and actually, there's there's even another layer there because the other factions would see me to try to get an idea of what Steve Bannon was saying about them. (laughs) Uh, Now, early last year, speaking to Brian Stelter on CNN, you said that the media was at war with Trump, that the press was being hysterical and making fools of themselves in their anti-Trump zeal. He, in every situation, seems to be provoking an overreaction. So we go into a fit of apoplexy And as we try to go after his credibility, our credibility becomes equally a problem. So what did you propose to your publisher, Henry Holt? Was it a counter-narrative to the kind of hysterical coverage you complained about? And is that what you told the Trump transition team to Bannon and to the president himself? No. I told the uh, the publisher just that I had an opportunity to go into the White House, to hang around. I thought I could get access at a very high level. That's what they bought. As for what everybody else expected, you know, I had written actually three pieces before this. I'd written a piece about Trump in June 2016. I wouldn't have necessarily said that the piece was a a laudatory piece. I think it had a lot of negative stuff in it. Nevertheless, he professed to have liked the cover of the magazine with his picture on it. It's very possible he never read the piece, and that was that was fine. I did a piece about Bannon. Probably the the first interview that Bannon gave was to me. You have confessed to sucking up to sources uh, to some degree. I think the term you used was brown-nosing, where it was necessary to get access. And I I assume particularly with Bannon. Did this rise to the level of actually misrepresenting your intentions, like the, the late Joe McGinnis infamously did to report his book, Fatal Vision? He claimed to change his mind about the subject's guilt or innocence in the midst of his reporting, you know, the book that emerged was scathing. Is that what happened to you? You were there to document a counter-narrative, but you discovered all the, in your words, well, hysteria from yes, the mainstream I mean, media in, was, in, was dead in, on after all? I never announced I was there to document a, a counter-narrative because I didn't know the narrative. What I said to everyone, two things. I said, this is going to be an account of the first 100 days. Actually, it went to the first 200 days because the first 100 days didn't seem to stop. Um, And they never moved the couch. Yes. And then the next thing I said is I want to write a book from your point of view. You tell me what's going on here. Which can be interpreted as I'm on your side. In this instance, I was reporting their disillusionment. So it wasn't my disillusionment with this enterprise. It was theirs. In other interviews, you have intimated that this exercise was the opposite of access journalism, which you've been accused of practicing, that the mainstream can't afford to lay it all bare because they all have to go back the next day, and you don't. You can scorch the White House earth and move on. Do you have any evidence that news organizations are actually pulling punches to preserve daily access? Obviously, at some level, they will be shut out of the White House. And let me say, I think daily reporters are doing a pretty good job of covering this administration at this point. The book is a different kind of thing. 
You know, the truth is that the stuff that the White House staffers said to me, they've said to many, 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 many other people. The difference is that I marshaled it all, put it into context, and went with it. A daily reporter has to write to a a particular form, and they basically are dribbling out the story of the chaos of this administration. And I am not dribbling it out. I am giving it to you all and giving it to you all at once, which is, it would seem to be, part of what people have found compelling about this. I mentioned Fatal Vision and Joe McGinnis. I've also been thinking a lot about Answered Prayers. Truman Capote's uh, novel that skewered the very New York high society that had adopted him as their literary kind of pet for decades. And the betrayal was too much for them. They disowned him. They shunned him. Will you ever lunch in this town again? If that town is Washington, I, I may never lunch in that town again. And thankfully, I'm from New York, so my lunches will be uninterrupted. Now, what about Bannon? Uh, Have you heard from him? Let me not say. I would prefer not to say. Um, I do not feel good about what's happened to Steve. I don't feel proud of myself for taking him down. Um, I um, I feel sad about that. I like Steve. I like Steve a lot. And I, you know, came to, as as you can see in this book, deeply appreciate his insights. Your sources in this book were Trump and Bannon and Kellyanne Conway and Reince Priebus and Jared Kushner. This is a pretty, pretty good collection of documented liars. How the hell do you judge whether you're getting the straight dope? I I, th- I think in the end that probably is is the question. And you go through. You're trying to trying to match stories and speak to other people who have had access to the same events. You know, there seems to be a, a controversial point I made in the introduction by saying I'm delivering in some instances the version that I believe is true. And it's like what what do you what what is it you believe? What is it about? It's not truth. Truth. In the end. I can't solve that problem for people. I've given the version that I believe is true or as close to the truth as anyone's going to get. People are looking for answers here. And, you know, I mean, I've actually tried to supply them, but the absolute answer of what has gone on here and what will happen here, I can't supply that. Uh, Michael, thank you very much. Thank you. Michael Wolf is the author of Fire and Fury Inside the Trump White House, and it is a publishing sensation. Shortly after Trump was elected, Masha Gessen, who cut her teeth reporting under autocratic regimes, most notably Putin's Russia, penned a viral piece in the New York Review of Books called Autocracy Rules for Survival. Among her rules, believe the autocrat. He may lie, but when it comes to fundamentals, he means what he says. And don't expect institutions to save you. Don't compromise. Do be outraged. And above all, she told us, resist the urge to normalize to say, oh, you know, all of that stuff that he said was just campaign rhetoric, it's hyperbole, and now he's going to become a normal politician, which is, you know, wishful thinking, simple and clear. Now Trump's first presidential year is behind us, and we wanted to check back with Gessen, so, Masha, 
Welcome back to the show. Thank you. You warned then, and you warn now, not to be taken in by small signs of normality. Where do we see small signs of normality? Whenever something really horrible, really unimaginable happens, and it feels like the world has just ended, you wake up the next morning and you realize the world hasn't ended. And that happens over and over again. That's a kind of habituation. You know, it's not the same thing as normalization. It's actually sort of looking at the Trump presidency, saying it's not normal, but I can sort of live with it. It's not as awful as the things that I've read about in books. So where do you see the biggest gaps between signs of normality and true abnormality? I would jump in with my button is bigger than your button. That's where I was going, but I would go a little bit bigger. Um, because my fear is bigger than his button. You know, we have been on the brink of a nuclear holocaust for about six months now. Do we know that? We've been hearing incredible nuclear holocaust saber-rattling rhetoric, but have we really come closer to an exchange? The doomsday clock looks as bad as it's ever looked. That's the expert opinion on the nuclear threat. And what we can see with the naked eye, which is that we have two unhinged men with their fingers on differently sized or similarly sized nuclear buttons threatening each other with annihilation. And that's unimaginable. That is so definitely not normal. That really makes us feel like the world has ended, and then you wake up the next morning and the world hasn't ended. Mm -hmm. What we do to survive in that state, which is on the face of it unbearable, we focus on other stuff smaller things like, you know, the decimation of the State Department, the total degradation of the presidency. The packing of the court. You know, the small stuff. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, what I'm calling the small stuff is actually also not capturing our imagination to an adequate extent, because we're constantly sucked into the latest thing that's happened. And we also have the nagging sense that the latest shiny object is probably distracting us from another shiny object that is a more important shiny object if we can only tear ourselves away. In a recent interview with Audie Cornish for the New York Times, you described concerns about outrage fatigue. Right. I mean, I don't think that humans are created or are meant to exist in a state of outrage constantly. That is a state of extreme discomfort. And the Trump presidency basically calls on a very large number of Americans to maintain a constant sense of outrage because Trump is maintaining a constant attack. But when it comes to outrage fatigue, even if you get excited about an issue, take the travel ban. In fact, why don't you take the travel ban? It's a perfect example, right? Well, what we saw in January of last year with the travel ban was a textbook example of how democracy should work. The president did something abhorrent, and formal and informal institutions kicked into gear at the same time. So we saw civil society putting pressure on the judiciary and stopping the travel ban. And then Trump put forward travel ban 2.0. And the institutions were a little bit fatigued, but were able to resist. And then travel ban 3.0. And the resistance was partial, but it still worked. And by the time travel ban 4.0 rolled around, nobody noticed. So it's basically whack-a-mole. Right. The judiciary isn't meant to respond to the same attack over and over again. If it stopped the travel ban once, that battle should be over. 
Trump, by proposing basically the same travel ban over and over again, is acting in bad faith and is stressing a democratic institution in a way that it can't withstand. This gets to your warning last year that institutions will not save you. Look, when I was making those warnings, I wasn't suggesting that there was really a way to come out unscathed. What I was basically saying is this is stuff that I have observed that Americans haven't had the experience to know about. If there's any advantage that Americans can have, it's being able to know what has happened before. If we're a little bit more intentional about the way that we live through this, then we have a better chance of coming out the other end. And so how do we achieve awareness? We keep trying to talk about what's happening in a systemic way. We're still falling short on being able to really take stock of big stories. The big story of deregulation, of institutional collapse, of attack on America in the world from inside. Attack on our diplomatic core. I mean the diplomatic core, I mean the State Department, but I also mean America's withdrawal from any number of international agreements. Mm -hmm. Another one of your rules for surviving an autocracy was to believe the autocrat. How have we been doing at taking Trump at his word? Um, not that great on it. A good example is the transgender in the military ban, mm -hmm. which when Trump tweeted that out in August, I believe, the first and second day analysis was all about how he can't make policy by tweet. As it turned out, that's not the case. He's the commander-in-chief, and if he wants to tweet out his orders, he can do that. But our first reaction is still to disbelieve, right? I think we're still in denial about the fact that he's building the wall. Throughout the campaign, he was saying, build the wall. And all the intelligent and sane journalists were saying, well, of course, he's not going to build the wall. And after he got elected, we kept saying, of course, he's not going to build the wall. And it's about time that we really let it sink in that he is going to build the wall. But let me ask you about your point about institutions will not save us. His transgender tweet got the ball rolling, but the military establishment and perhaps civil society stopped it. His tweet about three million improper votes denying him the popular vote started a commission that ultimately disbanded. Can't we see institutions, both formal and informal, pushing back? The fact that some things remain normal a year into this presidency is to be expected, but it shouldn't reassure us because I think that the rate of failure has been quite extraordinary. Now, you've also said that the popularity of Fire and Fury by Michael Wolff is another symptom of this impulse to normalize. You said that it further degrades our sense of reality. What we're observing is unimaginable even as we observe it. And so we want to peek behind the curtain because there's the snagging sense that there has to be more to it. It's like the opposite of The Wizard of Oz. What we're observing is not greatness and you know, all-powerfulness, it's sort of the opposite. It's mediocrity. It's being pathetic. It's this illiterate president. And so we want to know that there's more behind it. Maybe there's more intelligence. Maybe there's more something. And so we have this drive to look 
at what's behind there. What's behind there is actually the exact same thing that's in front. Masha, thank you so much. Thank you. Masha Gessen is a columnist for The New Yorker and author of The Future is History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia. Coming up, wait, did we miss the point of the Pentagon Papers? This is On the Media. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. And this is a clip from the new Spielberg film released nationally this weekend called The Post, as in The Washington Post. Ben, how are we supposed to comb through 4,000 pages? They're not even loosely organized. had three months. There's yeah. no way we can possibly He's get right. this right. We got less than eight hours. Hey, 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 hey. For the last six years, we've been playing catch-up. And now, thanks to the president of the United States, who, by the way, has taken a all over the First Amendment, we have the goods. We don't have any competition. There's dozens of stories in here. The Times has barely scratched the surface. In the summer of 71, the New York Times was hit with an injunction barring it from printing any more scoops from the Pentagon Papers, the top-secret history of the Vietnam War leaked by analyst Daniel Ellsberg. But now, the Post had a copy. The Pentagon Papers, the momentous, monumental chronicle of government secrets and lies, was described last year in the sweeping 18-hour film series The Vietnam War by Ken Burns and Lynn Novick. 7,000 pages of highly classified documents and historical narrative compiled secretly at the orders of former Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara. He had hoped a study of the decision-making process that had led the United States to become so deeply involved in Vietnam would help future policymakers avoid similar errors. Yet, Les Gelb isn't so sure the press got the right message from the Pentagon Papers. And he led the team that created them 50 years ago. What's more, he rarely gets the chance to set the record straight because researchers, they don't pick up the phone. The people behind the movie The Post didn't call. <laughs> the only one who came by really was Ken Burns. What did he ask you? He asked me about the origins of the Pentagon Papers, and I told him what they were, namely that we got a list from McNamara of 100 questions. Things like uh, what's happening in the field, how many of the enemy died. That's right, what's the body kill. Eight of the 100 questions were historical. I was given six people 
to work on these questions, and we were given two months to get them done. I collected the people. By the way, we were told not to tell anybody about this. We stared at the questions. We all started laughing. They said, why are we doing this? This is the kind of stuff we send up to the press secretary when we're preparing him to answer questions. And we're not going to be able to add anything to what we're doing on a daily basis. But some of the questions were bigger than that, Les. Uh, The questions included, are we lying about the number killed in action? Can we win this war? So how did the government feel about the war? I would say almost everybody in the government felt that the war was not going well. But a number felt there were ways to fight it better. There were very, very few people in the Pentagon or the State Department or the White House who were flat out against the war. Right. They believed in the domino theory. Essentially, that was it, that somehow if we lost a strategic place such as Berlin, we would lose Europe. And in fact, one of the memos you'll see in the Pentagon Papers the uh, State Department referred to Indochina as the Asian Berlin. That's how central they thought it was to the future security and safety of the United States. Hard to believe, but that's what we thought. But why did McNamara ask you these questions? If you were already given the best answers you could to the press secretary every day, uh, why? To this day, I don't know. McNamara initially just said, answer those questions. Then after this group of six that I had assembled schmoozed about it for several days, we decided, well, you know, it might be interesting if we could look back into the files and maybe give more in-depth answers to the questions we had been answering more or less from our daily experience. And inevitably, you had to dip back into the history We wrote up a list of about 20-some-odd monographs. Short papers. That's really what the Pentagon Papers is, a bunch of short papers. I sent the memo to McNamara, and he wrote on that memo, okay, let it be encyclopedic and let the chips fall where they may. But we were still enjoined from telling people about it. The only ones who really knew were... CIA, because McNamara called the head of the CIA, Richard Helms, and Helms shipped over to me an enormous quantity of these documents from the CIA. But uh, he never called Dean Rusk, the Secretary of State. He never called Walt Rostow, the National Security Advisor, or told Lyndon Johnson. The notion that this was a definitive history is just plain wrong, Brooke, because we didn't have that kind of access. And... We never were allowed to do any interviews. Hmm. And you were a 30-year-old punk, pretty much, I was 30 years old. I was director of policy planning in the Pentagon. It was your team who came up with the idea of writing these short papers, which became the Pentagon Papers. Ken Burns suggested, it's also suggested in the new film The Post, that McNamara commissioned this study as a cautionary tale for those who might follow in his footsteps. And so what do you think of that narrative? I think it's an explanation that Bob McNamara came up with after the fact. He told some people that he was doing this to save future leaders from making the same mistakes, 
And he told others who didn't like it. For example, he told Dean Rusk that he never asked for these studies. He just wanted a collection of documents. How long did it take? Started in June of 67, finished in February 69. And when it was all done, you know, we had these 36 volumes, which very few people who have written about the Pentagon Papers, I assure you, have read. <laughs> and then I took the papers over to McNamara's office at the World Bank. He was head of the World Bank in February 69. I brought him into his office, and we're sitting around this coffee table having a little chat. And then finally I said to him, would you like to see the papers? I opened up one of the boxes, handed him one of the monographs. He flipped through it like you flip through a deck of cards with his thumb, and he threw it back into the box, and he said, and I quote, take them back to the Pentagon. Do you think he ever read them? I have no idea. I spoke to him many times over the years, and I never asked him, and he never said. He was replaced by Clark Clifford as Secretary of Defense, a very sort of blue-blood lawyer who had virtually no foreign policy experience. And by the way, we thought Clifford was sent to the Pentagon by Johnson to sit on people like us who had begun to ask questions about the war that the White House didn't like. Clark Clifford sensed this right away and laughed and said, you know, realize I've been against this war since 1965. What did he think of the domino theory? That was the reason why he became a dove in 65, long before the rest of us foreign policy experts caught in the trap of our thinking. Johnson had sent him to talk to the Asian leaders about sending more troops to fight the war, and none of them would give any troops. And so Clifford said, I thought to myself, well, if the dominoes don't think they have to fight to save themselves, what the devil are we doing? By the time you were assembling what became the Pentagon Papers, it was already known to the Secretary of Defense and to the President, and possibly to you, if you were sending that information daily to the press secretary, that the war was not going to be won. Yeah, well, there were some people who thought it could be won. You know, but not the President and not the Secretary of Defense. That's correct. And yet they felt they had to continue to send battalion after battalion into the field to die. No question about it. But I think Walt Rostow and Dean Russ continued to believe that we still could pull this out. But you know, I think most people, by some time in 68, came more to believe that we couldn't afford to lose. They continued to send soldiers into it. Not to lose. To maintain a, a strange balance of power in the world. The domino theory. A bankrupt notion, as it later came to be believed. But at the time, most people in government believed it. The story has been put out that the Pentagon Papers showed they were all lying. But while the papers show some lies, the main message is that our leaders from Truman onwards didn't know hardly anything about Vietnam and Indochina. They were ignorant. And it also shows that the foreign policy community believed that if we lost Vietnam, the rest of Asia would fall. And that was kind of a given here we're talking about all this stuff, 
and you know far more than the average informed person about the Pentagon Papers, and you're surprised by my answers. That's precisely why we called you, Les, because there are popular legends about the Pentagon Papers, and you think that they convey a false narrative. Now, you concede there was an enormous amount of lying about numbers, constant statements of optimism. There was the Gulf of Tonkin incident. Yeah, I didn't even know that, Brooke, by the way, on the Tonkin Gulf, until I saw the actual negatives of the pictures taken during the shooting. Contrast the story we were told and what you saw. What the American people were told in 1964 was that North Vietnamese boats attacked American ships in the uh, Tonkin Gulf area and that our ships fired back. But what I found out when I actually saw the negatives of the pictures taken during that night that showed our ships firing huge guns and no small ships firing guns at us. I was astonished. Confusion in the Gulf of Tonkin initially, and later outright deception, enabled President Johnson to affect a huge escalation in that war. That's right. It provided the public justification. I would argue that you may underestimate the significance of the continuous lying throughout the conduct of that war. I don't think I underestimate the, the lying. I know what it was, and I know who was doing it. But you think the media narrative about it is outsized? It's outsized based on the Pentagon Papers. Ellsberg created the myth that what the papers show is that it all was a bunch of lies. But the tr truth is, people actually believed in the war and were ignorant about what could and could not actually be done to do well in that war. That's what you see when you actually read the papers as opposed to talk about the papers. <laughs> <laughs> so essentially, a set of beliefs forced the government to continue to sacrifice thousands of men in order to get the enemy to the table, maybe. And Dixon negotiated for another four years or so before uh, he concluded the deal. And how many people died in that period? as many as died in all the years before. You know, the total, I think, is something like 58,000 deaths, and God knows how many lives ruined. And look, I wish I had turned against the war much sooner, uh, and I regret it. You have no idea. No idea. Uh, but eventually I did, and then I spent several years of my life fighting against the Nixon policy and for the early end of the war. But it was too late. So how did you feel back in 1971 when you discovered that the New York Times was about to publish the Pentagon Papers? Well, that's a very good question because, to be perfectly frank, as I think I've been throughout this, this <laughs> interview, my first instinct was that if they just hit the papers, people would think this was the definitive history of the war, which they were not. And that people would think it was all about lying rather than beliefs. And look, because we never learned that darn lesson about believing our way into these wars, we went into Afghanistan and we went into Iraq. 
And do you think that's why it's important to clarify what the real lesson of the Pentagon Papers is? Absolutely. You know, we get involved in these wars, and we don't know a damn thing about those countries, the culture, the history, the politics, people on top, and even down below. And my heavens, these are not wars like World War II and World War I. We have battalions fighting battalions. These are wars that depend on knowledge of who the people are, what the culture is like. And we jumped into them without knowing. That's the damn essential message of the Pentagon Papers. Les, thank you very much. You're, you're very welcome. Yeah. It's so hard for people to swallow all this because of all these years of hearing the other story. You know, again, I don't deny the lies. I just want them to understand what the main points really were. Les Gelb led the team that wrote the Pentagon Papers. He's also a former columnist and correspondent for the New York Times and former head of the Council on Foreign Relations. Coming up, exclusive coverage of the red carpet at the president's famous Fake News Awards. This is On the Media. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. We in the media often attribute a portion of Donald Trump's election to fake news. And here I'm using the original meaning of that term. You know, Macedonian teens making bank on preposterous headlines, the Islamization of Texas, pizza shop, child sex conspiracies, that kind of baloney. Such fabrication, we worried, reverberated around the political echo chambers so resoundingly that our very democracy was imperiled. Or, you know, not. Brendan Nyhan is a professor of government at Dartmouth College. Earlier this month, Nyhan, along with scholars Andrew Guess and Jason Reifler, published new research on the consumption of fake news during the 2016 campaign, and their conclusions undercut our most dire characterizations of the threat. Fake news wasn't as widely consumed as people think. At least when it comes to visiting fake news websites, as we define them in the study, only about one in four Americans actually did that. And that consumption was overwhelmingly concentrated among the 10% of people who have the most conservative online information diets. All right, you're a college professor, so of course let us define our terms. Fake news, how do you define it? The sites we classified as fake news websites had been identified by fact checkers as repeatedly publishing false or dubious information that was overwhelmingly in favor of one of the two presidential candidates. We excluded from that list sites that previously existed and had been identified as already covering hard news topics. So that includes sites like 
Breitbart and Infowars, which existed prior to 2015 and 2016. So what we're measuring here is not every dubious site on the internet. It's instead people who are visiting these new sites that are publishing dubious content. Hmm. Do you have any reason to think that your conclusions would change had these pre-existing sites been factored in? No. And in fact, we show in an appendix to our paper, if you really want some exciting reading, that um, if you adjust for a couple of the, the borderline cases like Breitbart, the results are very similar. I was particularly interested in your methodology, which I read every word of and absolutely do not understand. Can you tell me what combination of outside data sets and your own surveys that you use to track the impact of fake news? This study is unique because we actually measure people's behavior in the real world. We surveyed a representative sample of Americans about a month prior to the 2016 presidential election, and we also observed their anonymized online browsing behavior on laptop and desktop computers. These are people who have provided consent to have that information shared with the survey company YouGov. And so we can actually observe the websites people go to. Now, there's one gigantic hole in your study that you actually acknowledge, and that is you didn't measure the mobile Facebook traffic. Do you have any reason to think that if you had access to those data that the study would have come out the same way? I have no reason to expect otherwise, but it's important to note that we don't observe the pages that people go to on mobile, mobile browsers, and we don't observe what they do on the social media platforms, right, in particular within the Facebook app. It seems like we'd observe the same patterns as we see in our data, but we unfortunately just can't see it. And that's a really important limitation to note. So you should think of our estimates as a kind of lower bound of, of fake news exposure. I want to get back to something you alluded to about the consumption of fake news, that the farther to the political right you were leading up to the election, the more likely you were to consume and even seek out fake news. We saw Trump supporters disproportionately consuming pro-Trump fake news. And then in particular, the 10% of people whose online browsing behavior was most skewed towards websites that disproportionately cater to conservatives also consumed the most fake news. It still represented a relatively small part of their political news diet, though. These are people who consume a lot of political news in general. But this consumption is so heavily weighted to the right-wing fringe, the notion of undecided voters being influenced by lies and democracy being subverted seems to me to be now very much in doubt. That's right. The prevalence of echo chambers is often overstated. Most Americans have relatively neutral or balanced political information diet. So we might worry that exposure to fake news introduced misconceptions into our public debate, misinformed people, but it's less plausible that exposure to fake news was changing the candidate people supported. Another finding that does track with a lot of post-election hand-wringing was Facebook's culpability, or at least, let's just say, central role in the dissemination of the fake content. Facebook is the largest social media platform. And so the data indicate that Facebook was disproportionately the mechanism by which people were exposed to fake news. And we see that in two ways. The people who used Facebook the most were the most likely to be exposed to fake news. But we think even more convincingly, immediately prior to visiting a fake news website, we see people having just visited Facebook in a way we don't see with Google, Twitter, or webmail platforms like Gmail. So it seems like Facebook played a key role in allowing for fake news to spread. 
the reach and scope of that platform helped create a lucrative market that attracted fake news entrepreneurs from all around the world. The company has recognized that to their credit, albeit belatedly, and is now trying to address it. All right, that sounds great. Although your study suggests that the people who consumed the fake news were duped and never looked for any place to get unduped. We can't see in our data if people believe the fact-checking articles they were exposed to. But what we do observe is that they almost never see a fact-check of a specific claim on a fake news website that they've been exposed to. And in fact, we rarely see people even Googling after being exposed to fake news. So that presents a real challenge. You know, it's a lot to ask people to go check every claim they encounter online on their own. I don't think almost anybody does that. People are busy and they have other things going on in their lives. That is so dispiriting. If you get an email from a Nigerian prince that says that all you have to do is surrender your banking information and then they will send you $5 million, most people understand that if it's too good to be true, it isn't true. When an ideological windfall comes your way through a Facebook share or something, why do you suppose people aren't equally skeptical? Partisanship does terrible things to our brains, Bob. I don't, I don't know what else to say there. Um, you know, look, some people were probably pretty skeptical. It's not that everyone took these claims literally, but enough people were being exposed to them and sharing them that they actually ended up reaching tens of millions of Americans in a way that wasn't previously possible. Brendan, as always, thank you very much. Thank you. Brendan Nyhan is a professor of government at Dartmouth College. It's award season. No, I'm not talking about the Grammys or the Oscars. I'm talking about the most dishonest and corrupt media awards. Yesterday, the president tweeted that he will be crowning a fake news champion. The post reads, I will be announcing the most dishonest and corrupt media awards of the year on Monday at 5 o'clock. It's a spectacle not to be missed. So we sent Bob to check out the scene on the red carpet. Right, Brooke, I'm here on the red carpet of the beautiful Emolument Plaza Hotel in downtown Washington. And let me just say, the energy here is electric. I see Anderson Cooper. Anderson, nice to see ya. Nice to see you. So how does it feel to be here surrounded by so many untalented and dishonest reporters? It's a great night and it's, uh, it's nice that, you know, people who don't ordinarily get this kind of attention, get this kind of attention. Well, best of luck as always. Oh, there's Maggie Haberman of the failing New York Times. Maggie, you're nominated for the totally fabricated bathrobe story. Do you, th Ma Maggie? Brooke, will have to try to grab her later. Bob, tell us about the awards we're going to see handed out tonight. Oh, Brooke, so many exciting categories. There's very dishonest, failing, unwatchable, nasty garbage journalism, unfair, and of course, the coveted Lifetime Disgrace Award. I asked a few attendees here about the buzz. Oh, there's no question. It's going to be CNN. I mean, come on. Jim Acosta, Jake Tapper, Don Lemon. Didn't they just sweep the enemy of the People's Choice Awards? Lots of people are talking about the failing New York Times, but I just don't see it. All right, this is a dark horse, but don't count out Deadspin. They've been doing unfair work under the radar for a long time. There are a lot of mendacious hacks gunning for the top spot. With me to discuss the competition is analyst Steve Bruggs. Steve, how you doing tonight? 
I'm great, Brooke. So who should we be looking out for? Well, Brooke, some of the networks have been dishonest, but not necessarily sad. Plenty of networks have been biased and unfair, maybe even disgusting. But were they nasty? Well, Steve, CNN. (laughs) That's right, Brooke. CNN has gotten lots of buzz and with good reason. Over the last year, the president has called it vicious, incompetent, fake, obviously. He even said that they represent our nation to the world very poorly. But just last June, the president tweeted, what about NBC, CBS, and ABC? What about the failing New York Times and Washington Post? They're all fake news. Sounds like there could still be some surprises in store tonight, Steve. (laughs) That's right, Brooke. (laughs) Whatever happens, it's sure going to be a fun night. (laughs) Thanks, Steve. But not everyone is excited about tonight's event. I'm joined now by Sean Bernofsky, critic for Media Hedge and self-described dishonest and corrupt media buff. Sean, you won't be watching this year's ceremony. Uh, That's right, Brooke. Over the years, the ceremony has gone from a celebration of craft to an overly politicized, entirely commercial spectacle. So what's an example of fake news that you did enjoy this year? (laughs) Honestly, Brooke, I almost only read foreign fake news anymore. There was a French piece last summer that was shattering. Vous ne croyez pas à quoi ressemblent ces célébrités en fond, Manon. Roughly translated, it's you won't believe what these child stars look like now. It was beautiful. Best fake news of the year. And no one has heard of it, of course. Sean, thank you very much. Hey, Bob, what's happening on the red carpet? Well, Brooke, the Trumpies, of course, are all about fake news, but they're also about fashion. Christiane Amapur just walked past me in a stunning fake Versace gown. Wolf Blitzer sporting a handsome pair of knockoff Tom Ford glasses and never one to be outdone. Pop star Lady Gaga showed up in a dress made entirely of Trump steaks. Great stuff, Bob. But it's not going to be all glitz and glam. I understand the ceremony is also going to include a tribute to the fake news stories we lost this year. That's right, Brooke. From what I've heard, the Academy is going to be honoring a number of stories, such as Hillary Clinton is a literal demon, Steve Bannon is getting the death penalty, and of course, the Pope endorses Donald Trump. They will be missed. We are poorer for the loss. Looks like things are wrapping up. They are, Brooke. People are beginning to move inside and take their seats. We'll see what happens tonight, but this much is clear. It's going to be one for the record books. In fact, we have it on authority from the president himself. that tonight's award ceremony will be the most watched event of any kind ever in the history of the world. That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Lana Casanova-Burgess, Jesse Brenneman, Michael Loewinger, and Leah Fetter. We had more help from John Hanrahan and Monique Laborde, and our show was edited by Brooke. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Sam Baer and Terrence Bernardo. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. Jim Schachter is WNYC's vice president for news. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, 
and the listeners of WNYC Radio.